0: Back in 2002, we were just not at the table when it came to mental health issues. 2022, one of the easiest mental health conversations to have at a political level, at a government level, at a department level, is around eating disorders.
1: For this month's Let's Talk In Depth, we're spending some time with the Mental Health Commissioner, Christine Morgan. Before she took her current job, she spent a decade as the CEO of Butterfly. Christine played a leading role in getting eating disorders on the government's radar – In 2012, she commissioned the first economic impact report, making the case that eating disorders were so prevalent and so serious that they were affecting Australia's economy. That got the politicians listening, and she was able to encourage more investment in research and prevention. But that's just the start of Christine's long list of contributions for people living with eating disorders. When
0: I first started my career far too many decades ago to say now, I was general counsel and company secretary within large ASX listed companies, so very much into mergers, acquisitions, corporate law. And then I had an opportunity to take quite a seismic shift and step into the space of not so much social work, but more into the space of social services and community work. And I transitioned across to a large non-government organisation, Wesley Mission, And in that space worked across community settings, uh, social services settings, justice settings, as well as mental health settings. And in that space was actively involved in running a couple of psychiatric hospitals, one of which specialised in eating disorders. So then an opportunity arose for me to move across into the eating disorder sector. Uh, First as CEO of a tiny little organisation called the New South Wales Foundation for Eating Disorders And then within the space of about a year, merging that with Butterfly Foundation, so taking a more national perspective. And I had 10 wonderful years working in a space of acute need around a neuropsychiatric condition that was not even called a mental health condition 10, 15 years ago. And that laid the groundwork for where I am today, which is working more broadly across mental health and suicide prevention.
1: It sounds like it was a kind of a noble calling for you. What sort of sparked your interest in working in eating disorders and, and I guess, more broadly, mental health?
0: So what started it with eating disorders, I guess, go back to the time when I was in Wesley Mission and had the opportunity to be running this psychiatric hospital where eating disorders were a specialisation. And just being struck by the lack of Understanding as to just how serious these illnesses were, the fact they actually were illnesses, and they just did not have a seat at the table when it came to mental health conditions. So, having had, as most Australians we now know, exposure to eating disorders and those with eating disorders over the course of my life, I thought, my goodness, this is really genuinely such a misunderstood illness. So, I guess maybe it goes back to my legal background, but that sense of opportunity to take the advocacy for it forward, to find solutions for it, to present the issues, really sparked my interest, which very quickly became a passion.
1: And look, I know you're aware that Butterfly's campaign at the moment is looking at the next 20 years after being around for two decades, but could we go back in time a little bit to 20 years ago? You know, what was the state of awareness and attitudes towards eating disorders two decades ago or so.
0: Oh, yes. So let's go back to 2002 and the incredible woman who set up our Butterfly Foundation, Claire Middleton, and her reality, very, very well-connected, compassionate mother living in Melbourne, access to the best medical treatment and mental health treatment available at that time. She had two daughters with eating disorders and was absolutely appalled, not only at the attitude towards what we now know is a very severe illness, but wasn't recognised at the time, just the lack of services. And as she used to so often tell me as we sat around the kitchen table, the lengths to which people had to go and the debts they had to incur to try and access any sort of treatment for their loved ones with an eating disorder just made her absolutely passionate to say, we have got to get things changed. So how was it 20 years ago it was appalling. There was a recognition potentially that anorexia nervosa was something pretty serious, but you know what? It was more often dubbed as being an overzealous dieting by white girls who wanted to be skinny or who were trying to get attention, or were pushing back against parents. So it was completely misunderstood as a mental illness. There was no acknowledgement or awareness of the binging components of eating disorders, which are so critical. There was no awareness of the life-threatening nature of eating disorders. You couldn't access treatment, let alone an integrated form of treatment that helped you for recovery, and the levels of stigma around it were massive. So it was seen as a badge of shame by far too many people and their families. So it was pretty horrific back then. Thank goodness we've moved on.
1: Uh, Well, the stigma thing is something that people still have a lot of trouble trying to shake, even today with our increased uh, awareness of it. But back 20 years ago, I think we have managed to get rid of some of the myths. But what were some of the... The, the myths or misconceptions, and I think you've mentioned a couple, but some of the main things that people really got wrong about eating disorders way back then?
0: I think one of the worst ones, absolutely worst ones, was that it was a lifestyle choice. So there was an element of choice in there. And the young girl, maybe, and it was often thought, you know, she wanted attention or she was pushing, as I said just said, pushing back against her parents, would just get involved in dieting, wanted to be skinny. It was about appearance. And all those kind of things. So I think it was seen as being a lifestyle choice. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that that is not a recognition of the illness component is anything but a choice. And anybody who's gone through an eating disorder will tell you this is not something anybody would choose to do. So I think that was probably the the foundational one. And it was such a barrier to actually being able to access treatment because, of course, if something is a choice, then just change your choices. If only it was that easy.
1: And when you finally, it was accepted that you did need treatment, can you take us through um, the state of, of, of treatment, I guess, as well as, you know, if there was anything being done to prevent or diagnose eating disorders in any sort of proactive way back then?
0: Look, it became, I think, in treatment terms, if you had to go to hospital, it was sheer hell. Absolutely sheer hell. You weren't understood as being a patient that needed support you were seen as being somebody who had to be force fed and it was a battleground around getting somebody to eat food without any recognition of the neuropsychiatric drivers and concerns that were were behind that it was highly punitive it was believed that you could force somebody to eat if you held back privileges from them or if you punished them for not doing so so it was punitive it was combative It was a case of very much working on the person and no attempt whatsoever to understand what might be the driving forces in that person. No engagement really in any of the psychotherapeutic components that you needed.
1: And so I guess there must have come a point when people realised something's missing here. Like what's wrong? What needed to change? And I know you mentioned Claire before, who we spoke to in the last episode, um, were were instrumental in bringing about this change but was there a point or was there a an uh, a, you know a point in time that you can go back to where things started to move in the right direction
0: oh gosh where look i think i think it has to be said and it can never be said enough that the voices of those who actually had a lived and living experience of the reality of an eating disorder either for themselves or somebody they loved and cared for, has always been a driving force. I think what has happened over the last 10 to 20 years is that we have worked within eating disorders in a deliberately collaborative way. And I say collaboratively, not consultative, because there's a key difference there. We've worked collaboratively, which has meant we've done a sit-back to say who are all of the voices that we need at the table to understand the issues and develop a common agenda to take the needs of all of this forward. When you look at it from that perspective, you start to bring into the picture our clinicians and our clinicians working across the fields of psychiatry, uh, dietetics, GP and the like, and, of course, our psychologists and therapists. You also bring in our researchers, so those who are looking at it. And a very key shift in the research has been away from whether or not treatment is effective, what are the causal factors that took us into the areas of epigenetics into neurosciences really incredibly important places then you also need to bring into the space those who provide services so that takes you into the health and the mental health sectors most importantly also need to keep there people who can have lived and living experience and we also recognized the importance of bringing in people who can shift policy who can understand government who can start to Uh, Deliberately advocate for uh, using the levers of government and some incredible philanthropists. I have to say here that for a horribly underfunded area of treatment and need, none of it could have been done without the philanthropic support of those who've been truly committed as well. So I think the shift began. When we began to realise we needed to bring them together, and I take my hat off to Claire at this one, she was always the most collaborative person to work with. So Butterfly was able to convince the government back in, gosh, it would have been around um, 2008, 2009, that we needed to be funded to bring this kind of group of people together. And that was the very beginning of the National Eating Disorders Collaboration, which still exists today, And we called that place a place of Switzerland, a place where we were not pushing anyone's particular interest, but using the principles of collaboration, which are intrinsically, I need to understand your successes and promote them, and we do it on a win-win basis. And that, I think, really shifted us forward.
1: The NEDC is a really good friend of the podcast. We've had a handful of NEDC officials on the show. Now, when you're talking about relying on philanthropy... We've seen the government pitch into the tune of more than $24 million very recently, and there's no doubt that's a great contribution. But when you think that there's about a million Australians affected by eating disorders at any one time, is it being given the attention it needs just yet?
0: I think where, where have we got to with eating disorders? And, and along the journey, there were some pretty foundational building blocks that we needed to do. So back in 2012, uh, Butterfly commissioned the first socioeconomic impact report. Why was that important? Because it actually became a vehicle by which we could say to government, this is the prevalence figure for eating disorders in Australia. It's a point prevalence. How many Australians today will have an eating disorder? At that stage back in 2012, it was a million. I would say to you that it's well over a million now because one of the impacts of COVID that is something we're really intrigued by is why there was a a significant increase, not only here in Australia but internationally, in the presentations of quite, quite complex eating disorders. So it's more than a million. It was also a lifetime prevalence figure and, most importantly, Through doing it through an economic lens, we were able to say to the government, this has got a really serious impact from an economic perspective, and when you unbundle the economic perspective, you see impact on somebody's life. So that enabled us to start a conversation with the government which was a lot more focused. This really is in our front yards, not our backyards. We have too many Australians being impacted by it. So we began to see a shift at that particular point in time.
1: Just to clarify, the report Christine's talking about here is called Paying the Price, the Economic and Social Impact of Eating Disorders in Australia. It was released back in 2012. And if you're particularly interested in having a look, all 136 pages are on the Butterfly website. And there's a link in the show notes.
0: Then we were able to, through the NEDC and the work of Butterfly, to be able to explain to the government a single-pronged approach is not going to work here. We need investment not only in improved treatment options, but we need to be looking at what are the, we need to invest in research, we need to invest in treatment options, we need to invest across the various stages so we've got an integrated approach, and we need to ensure that we are supporting families as well. So when you look at the investment that's been made, we can tick those boxes now. We can say that we are getting some really good research uh, funding and we are getting significant improvements when it comes to treatment options, including in community and in residentials. But I think probably, and this I think still goes down as being the seismic shift from government, and it's one which has an ongoing cost implication for government but also cost savings for people. The MBS, Medicare, has not to date, other than for eating disorders recognised in 2019, had a specific protocol around treatment of a mental illness. But in 2019, we were able to uh, secure from the government, and it's an ongoing commitment, a specific protocol or regime whereby somebody who is diagnosed with a complex eating disorder has access to a significantly enhanced number of um, therapeutic sessions, sessions with dietitians, and sessions with GPs.
1: The situation now is that if you've been diagnosed with an eating disorder, you may be eligible for up to twenty Medicare subsidised sessions with a dietitian, and forty sessions with a mental health clinician over a twelve month period. That's a huge improvement to what was available before.
0: So we actually have embedded into the system evidence based modalities of treatment which are now funded through our Medicare system, our universal funding system. So yes, we continue to get top-up investment to support our residentials. Yes, we get ongoing investment in community-based solutions, but it's those system changes, which are the ones that really drive forward how we can ensure that any Australian with an eating disorder can access the care they need.
1: Well and I guess the understanding is something that's going to take time. It doesn't matter how, you know, how much how many different programs and things we push out there that getting, you know, the frontline workers to understand what they... So, for example, I went to get my care care plan uh, about a month ago and the first thing they said was jump on the scales. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, things like that we know uh, are not helpful. And I spoke to the GP afterwards. And I know that from, you know, talking to so many people with lived experience, getting somebody to jump on the scales is the first thing they do is possibly the worst thing you could do. Um, how... How do we go about sort of moving those kind of behaviours?
0: So, and it's a very good, good question. It's a strong question because there are different levels of awareness. And the first thing I will say about awareness levels is that I fell into the trap that I suspect others do as well, which was you raise a level of awareness about something that will change somebody's attitude or opinion or behaviour. Wrong doesn't necessarily happen it's much more complex than that so I tend to look at awareness these days in different groupings firstly and I'll come back to that one about how do we encourage our health and our mental health professionals to have a deeper understanding but the first level of awareness is within government and I said that back in 2002 we were just not at the table when it came to mental health issues 2022 the one of the easiest mental health conversations to have at a political level, at a government level, at a department level, is around eating disorders. So I think we can, as a sector, say that we have definitely shifted that dial and that eating disorders there have been recognised. Why? Because we did do that building block approach and, most importantly, we brought our researchers, our clinicians and our lived experience together to tell a very cohesive story and one where it became impossible to ignore it. So that has worked.
1: So what should our approach be to helping healthcare workers and uh, the community become more aware and therefore, I guess, more well-equipped to really help people?
0: Again, I think it is, a, it is a building block by building block by building block. I think we have probably moved to a point where health and mental health professionals recognise that eating disorders are neuropsychiatric disorders. They're, so I think we are there in that space. But understanding the nuances, understanding the presentations, understanding the causal factors, what is driving that person's way of thinking, and those things which will be useful or not useful is still a work in progress. And one of the particular things around an eating disorder, which I don't think we can change, is that the descriptor, the descriptor is, I think, so clunky. To call something an eating disorder is to focus in on what is, if you like, the behaviours that result from the illness as distinct from the illness itself. So when we call something an eating disorder, we're focusing in on behaviours that are disordered because the person is not well. That's not a really helpful way to talk about it. So it instils in those who don't have a nuanced, sophisticated understanding of eating disorders a view that it's about food, it's about weight, and it's about shape. When nothing could be further from the truth, that is the manifestation of the illness, not the illness per se.
1: That's something that I haven't thought about it in, in terms of being described as an eating disorder. Is that in itself something that's helpful or not? What do you think that the that there need to be changes to th- fundamental things like the DSM in that kind of a way?
0: What, one of the challenges we have. I'll, I'll answer that question in a broader sense around mental health, and then bring it down to disorders is that when you look at a physical disease such as cancer, you have very definitive, quantitative ways that you can diagnose when somebody has an illness, and we talk about it in terms of illness, and you can be very measured about treatment options. Usually it's around drugs, so you're working in that kind of space, or it's around uh, modalities such as chemotherapy, etc. cetera, and you can measure whether you're successful or not. When you come into the space of mental health, it's not something you can see or do an x-ray about. To define a mental health issue, a mental illness, is to very much talk about how people are thinking, how people are feeling, how, how people are behaving. There's much more of an interpretive component to it. There's much more of a subjective component. There's much more of a descriptor component about it, which means of necessity you do have to look at symptomology. You've got to look at behaviours. And it's one of the challenges within a a kind of a diagnostic regime such as as DSM-5 or 6, which is that you have to look too often at frequency of behaviours, not anything else. So it's an innate challenge, which if you look at it when it comes to an eating disorder, one of the challenges over the decades we've coped with is How do you know when somebody has anorexia nervosa? If you define it by a certain body weight or by certain behavioural patterns, you run the risk of saying, oh, you're not really sick enough to be categorised having that particular eating disorder. Whereas if you look at the symptomology, when you look at the behavioural trajectory, you're saying, you know what, I think we've got something really serious to worry. So I think there's an inbuilt challenge when it comes to how you actually identify whether somebody has a mental illness that is embedded in eating disorders. And that is a a very real issue that we need to try and adopt. One of the things that help us on that is to continue our research into the epigenetics. What are the genetic markers that will show us that somebody's at risk? What is the interplay with the environment, including in utero, which impacts on it? What happens when those biomarkers are triggered? What changes in our brain? What are the neural pathway changes? All of those things take us more into that quantitative science area that's useful.
1: Well, and I think you're starting to get towards where I'm going next, which is um, looking into a crystal ball, uh, looking into the future. Is there anything that excites you about the treatment of eating disorders?
0: Absolutely. And I think that what excites me about it is realising that the more nuanced and sophisticated we can become around understanding what are those biomarkers on our DNA chains, what is the intersect with the environment, why, and I put this question out there, why is it that over the course of the last two and a half, three years, when internationally and nationally we have grappled with COVID, we haven't really seen a marked increase in schizophrenia, in psychosis, in bipolar but sure as heck, we have seen a significant increase in eating disorder presentations. And one's requiring hospitalisation. And most disturbingly, the sharpest trend of increase is in prepubescent children. What is happening? We've got to ask ourselves those questions. These are not lifestyle choices. So what is actually happening? That excites me because if we can actually nail those questions, then The underpinning premise of mental health treatment, which is intervene early, intervene early in illness and early in episode, will really be able to put sharply in focus. And we know with an eating disorder that the, the ongoing nature of it, the deep entrenchment of it, the neural pathway changes that hardwire the brain lead to that horrific impact over so much of somebody's life. If we can get these things early, then we may not be able to prevent eating disorders, though that's always an aspiration, but we can, sure as anything, make sure that the impact on somebody is minimised.
1: And I guess we could then go down a, a, a rabbit hole of looking into te- whether technology is something to be able to help us, but I think that's a question for another day. What are your hopes? Like, what in a perfect world, where are we going to be in 20 years with treating people with eating disorders?
0: where we're going to be in 20 years. And by the way, can I say, I think that whole space of online health is a really important one. I mean, it's here to stay. Telehealth is a reality that's emerged out of COVID-19 for mental health. It is there. How we do it safely is important. We need to balance the potential of our online health services with how we do it responsibly and safely. It's a big issue. So always open for discussion on that one. Where would I like to be in 20 years? I'd like to think that it's business as usual for GPs and others to be alert to the signs, the early signs of those who are at risk of developing eating disorders because I don't think we're ever going to eliminate the risks until we can actually go in and hope we never do this, manipulate our DNA chains. We're not going to eliminate it from that perspective. (laughs) But I think that we can... We can certainly assume that all GPs just have it on their checklist. What are those things we need to look at? That when we identify those early risk behaviours, that we have a basket of modalities of choice so that we effectively work with the individual, with the person, to engage them not only in how to manage that presentation at an early stage, but how to more broadly be aware of their own risks and to embed strategies that will help them it and then for those who do develop um, severe and longer lasting eating disorders that we have a fully integrated continuum of care for them where we look right across the spectrum of residentials community-based settings family-based settings where we keep hospitalizations to a minimum and where we have opportunities to work as I say most importantly with the person so we can unlock their healthy behaviours, their own innate strengths to help them overcome the immediacy of the presentation of the eating disorder, but to act as a protective factor for them through their lives as well.
1: Wow. Awesome. I mean, I guess, look, that is something that that we definitely aspire to. Now, I know you've got to run. Before we do, is there anything else you wanted to say? Is there anything I've missed or is there anything else you think is relevant for our audience to know?
0: I think what I would like to say is firstly a shout out to everybody with lived and living experience your courage your strength and your clarity in being able to explain what is happening and what works for you has been foundational absolutely foundational I'd like to shout out to all of the clinicians across the health and the mental health and associated other professions who work in this space including those in schools and elsewhere, because I think those whole issues around body image are big issues that we need to address as well. A shout out to our researchers. Without you, we would not have made these really foundational, fundamental shifts. And a real happy birthday to Butterfly. You have been doing absolutely incredible work. My hat off to Claire and everybody on the board and those who've worked with it over the years, the work you're doing, and to those people who support you, including those who give above and beyond in financial and other ways to support this work. So I guess my call out is to say an enormous acknowledgement and thank you to each and every different voice that has contributed to making a real seismic difference for how eating disorders are recognised, understood, still misunderstood, but better understood and addressed in Australia. Big thank you.
1: What a lovely way to end. Thank you so much. Christine Morgan, Mental Health Commissioner, thanks for your time. Thank you. If you need support with an eating disorder or negative body image, the Butterfly Helpline is there seven days a week from 8am until midnight. The number to call is 1800 334673. Or you can go online to butterfly.org.au. And of course, if you prefer, you can chat online. Butterfly.org.au is the website. For more on Butterfly's 20-year milestone, check out the Next 20 campaign. Uh, You'll find that under campaigns, again, on butterfly.org.au. And there's a link also for that in the show notes. If you like what we're doing here, the Butterfly Let's Talk podcast and the Butterfly in-depth bonus episodes, if you could please leave us a rating or a comment on either Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, we'd really appreciate that. That would really help us out a lot. And as always, if you know somebody who you think could benefit from hearing these kind of conversations, please tell them. This show's an Icon Media production for Butterfly. I'm Sam Icon. For more on me, you can go to IconMedia.au. That's I K I N. For more on Christine Morgan or the Mental Health Commission, go to mentalhealth.gov.au. And until next time, thank you so much for your company.